0: The following message was given by Nick Kidwell, the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. If you have a Bible, you can open to Matthew chapter 18, where we'll pick up where we left off in our series, through Matthew. It is hard to believe that we're already two-thirds of the way through the Gospel of Matthew. I remember reading Matthew as a boy for the first time. Um, I think I was like early middle school. And it's the only book that I distinctly remember reading for the first time. I had been given a Bible in like the third grade, and I still have that Bible. But I'd never just sat down and read it on my own before. And somewhere, I still have this old notebook where I copied down verse after verse that impacted me. So you can imagine how blessed I was recently when my oldest son told me that he's also been reading Matthew and that it's currently his favorite book. I'm praying that his experience mirrors my own, uh, that these inspired words would be stored up in his heart, guiding him for many years, and I'm praying that for you as well. So let's begin by reading our passage this morning. We'll be reading verses 1 through 4, and then jump ahead to chapter 19, where we'll read verses 13 through 15. It should be also up on the screen. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Starting in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And jumping ahead to 19, starting in verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples... Rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Heavenly Father, please bless the preaching of your word. Undoubtedly, there are people in this room who love kids. I mean, they actually enjoy them, (laughs) they're not difficult to spot. You may find them holding the babies downstairs, playing with the toddlers, often making faces and voices, because these are the people who just aren't really ashamed of being silly. And then there are those who struggle to enjoy children, for various reasons. They're gross. Kids don't care about hygiene or cleanliness. They break things. They're loud, they're unruly, they're exhausting, and often a little bit selfish. I don't think most of you are going to just outright say, I don't like kids, because no one wants to look like a monster, but you know who you are. Now, some of you are aware that I work in a NICU, a neonatal intensive care unit, um, and since nobody forced me to do that, you can probably guess what kind of person I am. Yes, Jesus and I enjoy children. (laughs) But no, naturally, enjoying kids is not A morally superior position, nor does it have anything to do with what Jesus is trying to teach us this morning. But that does beg the question, what is it about children that Jesus wants us to understand? And in what way are we supposed to become like them? Truly, he says, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are strong words. Plus, there are other passages where we're told not to be like children. 1 Corinthians 14.20, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. All in all, this is a great example of a fairly well-known biblical scene that can be easily misunderstood. We've all seen pictures of Jesus welcoming the children, sitting with them, giving them his undivided attention. It's common knowledge that Jesus loves the little children. All the little children of the world. But if that's all that we get out of Jesus' inter- interactions with children, we're really missing the point. Now, before I get to that point, I want to set the stage a bit more because I want to make sure that we're not bringing unhelpful or slightly misguided assumptions into this scene. Jesus, as you've seen many times, uses stories and he uses metaphors to teach because they're powerful powerful. And they're also very memorable. But they require a little bit of context and an understanding that could have been common knowledge 2,000 years ago, but that we just might not have anymore. So it might be difficult for us to immediately grasp the statement Jesus was making by setting a child before his disciples, especially in response to their question about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. After all, 2,000 years ago, childhood and a child's place in the world was not what it is today. Jesus is pointing us to a child long before Disney, before Peter Pan or Neverland. This is not a Toys R Us kid. We are uh, long before any notion that childhood was a magical time, a season of life to cherish and hold on to. There were no popular stories Uh, Certainly no movies, obviously, but no stories where the children were the main characters or the heroes, often saving the clueless grown-ups. That just was not what people thought. Today, the popular depiction of a child is like a, a dreamer, a unique individual with gifts, personality, who might be vulnerable, and in need of guidance, but who may also have valuable instincts and qualities that have yet to be tainted by the world, qualities that many grown-ups have lost. Enter the Polar Express and every other modern Christmas movie. 2,000 years ago, and really for most of human history, a child was basically not yet an adult. That's, That's what they were. They were not yet an adult. They were seen more as an extension of the family than a unique individual. And I'm not at all saying that parents didn't love and cherish their children or care about their future or take their upbringing very seriously. All of this is encouraged throughout the Bible, and we see numerous examples of that. But a child's identity was bound to what they would someday become. It was about their potential, and until they reached that potential, they were not esteemed. You know, in in this very hierarchical system, children had their place, and it was not a high one. In some ways, they were at best incomplete, and at worst, negligible. In the Old Testament, we see God repeatedly condemning and forbidding the practice of child sacrifice because that was happening. In the Roman Empire, unwanted infants could simply be abandoned without consequence, which unfortunately is still far too common in some places even today. Again, God's word has been clear all along. Children are a blessing and sacred image bearers of God from the womb. They are to be loved and protected. Even so, we, as we think about this scene, we need to be aware of the reality that it was a difficult world for children back then. And they certainly weren't a picture of greatness. I mean, how could they be great? They hadn't done anything yet. (laughs) So when Jesus sets a child before his disciples and says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, he's not pointing us to some childish, immature way of thinking. He's not telling us to be naive. He's turning our understanding of greatness upside down. We, like the disciples, often think greatness equals impressive, self-made, a winner, the best, the leader, to which Jesus says, you don't understand. In my kingdom, the greatest are those who embrace their insignificance, who know they need help. The unimpressive, the unnoticed, the not yets, the least, and the lowest. Those are the greatest in my kingdom. He's taking away everything we are tempted to boast about and trust in, everything apart from him. Paul expresses the same idea to the Philippians. When after listing all the things that he used to boast about before knowing Christ, his background, his family, his position as a Pharisee, his zeal for keeping the law, even at one time his persecution of the church, he says, but whatever gain I had, all that stuff that I thought added to me, made me who I am, all but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Christ wants us to be humble, like a child is humble. It's not a show you put on. It's part of who you are, your place, your identity. A child is humble by nature because there is so little that they can do. We all know that kids can, in fact, be quite proud and boastful, trying to show off all the time, and all the adults just nod their heads because they know that they're not that impressive. And Jesus wants us to embrace that humble reality about ourselves. So that's what we'll explore today. We're going to see that true greatness is embracing our identity as a humble child of God. And if you like points, I've got three. The humble child of God needs the Father. The humble child of God loves the Father. And the humble child of God is safe with the Father. So starting with our need. Last week, Nick was explaining our freedom in Christ. And he said that all other philosophies and religions of the world depend on self-performance. Humans striving to do enough good to secure their place, to earn their reward. But in Christ, we've been set free. Free from the law and from bondage to being good enough. And the disciples are certainly operating under this old mindset when they ask Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Remember, the law of Moses and the covenant that God made with Israel as he was bringing them out of slavery in Egypt was dependent on performance. It's all they ever knew. If you do this, if you follow my laws, if you make these sacrifices, then you'll be blessed. If you don't, the blessing, the land, the favor you enjoy, it will be taken away. And again, as Nick explained last week, the law, that system, was never the solution. It was never going to make us right with God which is why the prophets long before Jesus arrived spoke of a day when everything would change. I love how it's expressed in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Those words were written roughly 600 years before Jesus was born. God knew that we couldn't do it on our own. He knew that we would never measure up, so he made another way. He made a way that even a child couldn't screw up. In fact, it's a way that was made for a child. As I said before, I work in a NICU, and there are babies there who are on every form of life support that you can imagine. They can't eat on their own. They can't breathe on their own. Some are on machines that literally pump their blood. It's the picture of helplessness. And it's a picture of you and me. A child will not survive on their own. A Christian cannot live without the Father. You need Him. In every conceivable way, you need Him. Every conceivable way. Yes. How do we need Him? Let me count the ways. You need Him to exist. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. You need Him to grow. Apollos watered. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. You need him to enjoy life. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. You need him to succeed. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. You need him to know the truth. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. You need him to tell you who you are. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You need him to do any good, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You need him to save you from your sins, for, by, for it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Church, you need him to do anything, And with him, there is nothing you cannot do. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I can certainly go on. You need him to get home safely. You need him to find your keys this morning. You need him to find a spouse. You need him to hold on to that spouse. You need him to sleep peacefully. You need him to to persevere in trial. You need him when you feel desperate. He supplies your daily bread. And he delivers you from temptation. On the night that he was betrayed, at the Last Supper that we mention every single week, Jesus told his disciples, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing apart from him. And a child, a child of God, knows this and embraces this. Do you embrace this? Do you know how to embrace this? There are moments, moments in your life when things just change so dramatically that it's hard to even imagine or remember what life used to be like. And for parents, one of those moments is when your child climbs into the car and buckles up all by themselves. It's magical. It really is. After years of being homebound, you can now freely leave the house whenever you want. Because a child expects you to do everything for them. But as we know, they grow, they learn, they become more independent soon, they want to do it all by themselves. But not all of them. My daughter, for one, her name is Joy, and she does not see the value in buckling herself up or walking uphill. Not because she can't, but because why should she? Her dad is right there. Friends, be more like Joy. Her father may be a sucker, but your father (laughs) wants you to rely on him for everything, because apart from him, you can do nothing. And how does a child express their needs? They cry. They whine. They fall down. They petition any way that they can over and over. As we've walked through Matthew, Jesus has modeled and taught about prayer many times. And I don't have time to go back over the Lord's Prayer, thankfully we already said it this morning, or the example of the persistent widow who just wouldn't stop asking. But I can tell you that for the child of God, prayer isn't a task. It's not a duty, it's not an obligation or a show, it's just a necessity. Babies cry, Christians pray. Because we need Him. The humble child of God needs the Father. So make your needs known. Talk to Him. Not just when you're in trouble, not just when you don't know what to do, not just before bed or a meal, but anytime and all the time. You're never a bother. He's never too busy, and He's always listening. Philippians 4, 6-7. through 7. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what happens? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I was tempted to just leave it at that. Um, You know, express your need as a child of God through prayer. But... There is another category that I think we should be mindful of, and I'll call it acknowledging him. When we acknowledge God, we are trusting him, submitting to him, giving glory to him by recognizing who he is and what he's done for us. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. See, I didn't want you to get the impression that relying on God is simply asking for more and more things in prayer. I'm not at all saying don't ask, but there is is something more to it. There is a posture of the heart that acknowledges God in everything we do. Even the stuff that doesn't seem very spiritual. It's a heart of gratitude. You may simply just be thankful that you woke up in the morning, that you have a job to go to, that you have breakfast to eat. And it's a conscious commitment to him in all that you do. At our last uh, fellowship group meeting, we were, people were sharing various things about their spouses, encouraging things, things that they um, were thankful for, just enjoy. And one of the most encouraging things that I heard all night was one of the wives who said, I love that I don't have to question his motives. I have no doubt that my husband is living for God and for the good of our family. That's a beautiful picture of a humble child of God who knows he needs the father and acknowledges him in all his ways. So moving on to our second point, the humble child of God loves the father. It almost goes without saying that children love their parents. The bond between the two is so strong that God himself uses it to describe the love that he has for us. Isaiah 49:15, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Sadly, we know that a mom or a dad is capable of forgetting their child, failing to love them as they should, and few things feel so wrong. We're also aware that as a child grows, they can and sometimes do reject their parents, even outstanding ones who, though flawed as we all are, love and care for them very well. I bring this up because the world around us often assumes the love between parent and child, rightfully grieving when those bonds are broken. But the world also seems to have trouble understanding the Christian's love for God. Maybe some of you sitting here now sincerely wonder, why should I love God? Well, the answer is simple, because he loved you first. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. There is something odd about trying to explain why we should love God. It feels like trying to explain to my kids why they should love their mother. Not that they are ever asking that. (laughs) Besides, I have a lot more practice explaining to their mother why she should love me. But (laughs) there are reasons, of course. Reasons we should love God. It's just strange strange to try to convince someone of something that should be both obvious and natural. Nevertheless, I will try. The humble child of God loves the Father because if love exists, and it does, and if certain things are more lovely than others, and they are, God is more lovely than all of them. He is more worthy of our love than we can begin to understand. Before a baby can grasp anything as deep as love, she learns that her mother provides for her needs. She is repeatedly fed and soothed, and the mother's presence itself soon becomes a comfort, and even just the thought of that presence being gone is enough to cause many tears. Over time, this bond of sacrificial care, giving, bringing comfort, transforms, and it becomes genuine gratitude and love. How much more with the one who is responsible for providing every good thing in your life? Before you ever knew God or had any inclination toward him, he was taking care of you. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. The Father not only created you, planned for your existence before the foundation of the world, but he is also the reason that anything in your life is enjoyable, delightful, or beautiful. But that's not all. Because no created blessing that you've ever experienced compares with the ultimate expression of his love found in Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And this gets to the heart of why many people can't understand why we love God and why the humble, the humble child of God can't help but love him. Do you know why Jesus was so unpopular with the Pharisees? While sinners, the poor, the outcasts, flocked to him, often weeping at his feet. It's because... The humble, the ones who have nothing in themselves to boast in, see in Jesus a love that they know they do not deserve. This very thing happened in the home of a Pharisee. Dinner interrupted by a woman who everyone looked down on, who was known as a sinner. And Jesus' explanation to this proud Pharisee who thought he was good enough is that those who have been forgiven of little love little. And those who have been forgiven of much love much. There is a quote attributed to Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte, um, specifically from like, his exile to one of those islands. And its, not, its authenticity isn't completely certain. Um, but either way, it's been around for a long time and the sentiment is profound. I know men, this is what he says, I know men, and I tell you, that Jesus is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our geniuses? Upon force. Jesus founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. That humble child of God can see how much they need to be forgiven, And they are so amazed that the king of the universe, the author of life, would actually die for them, would suffer for the very sins that they committed, and they can't help but love him back. His love transforms us. His love is why we are children of God. And as children who love their father, we seek to honor him, to obey him, And we can trust 100% that his commands are for our good. That does not mean it's always easy. Sometimes parents ask their children to do something that they don't want to do. Sometimes something hard, and they can't always see the good in it or understand the reason. But if things are as they should be, they trust mom or dad and they obey. See, Napoleon was not wrong. Countless men and women have been willing to die for Christ because he died for them first. We love him because he first loved us, and in loving us, he has destroyed the power of sin and death over our lives, which means we have nothing to fear, not even death. And that brings me to my last point. The humble child of God is safe. The humble child of God is safe with the Father. There are two groups of people that God repeatedly calls us to remember and to look out for, and those are widows and orphans. Exodus 22. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. James 127. You shall not mistreat, sorry, religion that is pure, And undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. God's word is clear. He cares about the orphan. There is a special place in his heart for those who can be easily taken advantage of, who lack a protector or a provider. And he especially despises any mistreatment of these people. That's why in the Western world, places where Christianity uh, has shaped the culture for generations, we are inclined to care about the weak and the vulnerable. Almost everyone agrees it's morally right to have compassion on the helpless. And it's particularly despicable to neglect or take advantage of them. There's a documentary that's almost 10 years years old now called The Dropbox. It's about Pastor Lee and his wife from Seoul, South Korea who, in response to the hundreds of infants being abandoned on cold streets in the middle of the night, often found when it was too late, built a box in the side of his church where babies could be left safely. This aging pastor and his wife, with the help of a handful of volunteers, have saved nearly 2,000 children since 2009 when he built his box. The vast majority are placed with government agencies to find foster homes, but along the way, Pastor Lee and his wife have adopted almost a dozen children, and most of them have disabilities. At the end of the film, Pastor Lee is explaining how all of this came about. He says, I never thought that I would have to adopt any of them. I didn't think about it or plan for it. The reason I decided to become their father was because God has adopted me. Pastor Lee could not be more right. To be a child of God is to have once been lost, vulnerable and fatherless, a slave to sin and to endless striving, until one day you were adopted. Galatians 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. We were orphans, and now we are sons and daughters. We were once helpless and afflicted, and now we are safe. Now, by pointing us this morning to our spiritual adoption, I don't want to over-spiritualize this truth. The last thing I want is for us to forget about those who are both spiritually and physically orphans because we should not forget. It's one of the reasons we had Doug Hayes come and share about coming at Mercy's and their orphan sponsorship program a few weeks back. In fact, I saw that, that movie, The Dropbox, years ago when it came out in 2015. But there's no question that I was thinking about it again recently because my newest nephew is an energetic little boy who was just adopted from South Korea after being left in Pastor Lee's box about two years ago. My brother and sister-in-law understand the heart of God for orphans, and I pray that we would learn from their example. Even so, there are no spiritual truths that do not have material implications, and I know that there are people here who need to know, to understand, and to hear how safe they are as God's adopted children. Your adoption was not your idea or your doing. Children don't adopt themselves, and Christians do not save themselves. And that means you can't screw it up. If you are in Christ, if you have repented of your sins and have faith that Jesus paid your debt, then you are now a child of God, and God takes care of his children. You may still feel anxious. You may worry about tomorrow, but you don't have to. You are safe. You are safe with the Father, and he promises to provide for all of your needs. You may not see the provision today, right now. It may not come as you expect, but your heavenly Father knows what you need. You have nothing to worry about. You may have screwed up today. You may screw up tomorrow. And, and much, I know, much of what you hear from this stage, much of what you read as you open God's word is meant to keep your feet on the path of righteousness, to help you to say no to sin and yes to God's way. But you may at times feel like there's just no way. It's just too hard. Well, to that, I certainly can't say it any better than the Apostle John. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for also for the sins of the whole world. That crazy word that starts with the p, propitiation, it means an atoning sacrifice. His death paid our debt of sin, absorbing the punishment that we deserved, so that God is both holy, perfectly just, and the merciful justifier of our souls. There is a place and there is a time for taking a look at our lives, asking whether we see the fruit that his spirit produces in all of his children. But do not forget that your fruit, that godly fruit, is simply a mark of your adoption. He began a good work in you, and he promises to complete it. You may feel like you're not good enough, and you never will be. And to that I say, amen. The humble child of God knows he is not good enough, and the Father chose him anyways. And if you ever start thinking you are, start thinking you are good enough, I encourage you to turn to Matthew 18 and remember who the great ones are in God's kingdom. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for adopting us. Thank you for calling us your children, for calling us out of darkness, for paying our debts, for keeping us safe, for providing for our needs, for loving us first. Lord, I pray that any here today, any here today who doubt that, that you would remove those doubts, that you would reveal yourself as a loving father that they would fall down before you as your as your children and trust that they are safe in your loving grip. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for all that you have provided for this day. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Nick Kidwell given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.